Ready. We appreciate what Bryce does. He often gets yelled at when something's going wrong, but half the time we're talking to him, it's because we're doing something wrong, not him. So sound guys usually only get noticed uh, when there's a problem, but we're really thankful for Bryce and some of the others who serve behind the scenes and make it possible to record sermons and do all sorts of things that are a benefit to, to many of us. So thank you, Bryce. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into our, our discussion this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here this morning, that we can be together uh, as your church, as the family of God. I thank you just uh, reflecting even on what we heard last Sunday, that what binds us together is our shared faith in Christ. We are participants in grace and in the gospel. And so I ask that as we come together, as we study your word, that we would be compelled by love for you, and that as we uh, sit under the teaching of your word, as we discuss your word together, um, that our, our focus on the truth would also be something that strengthens our unity, that strengthens the relationships we have with one another, the love we have for one another. So Lord, it's, uh, it's a Sunday morning, and some may still be waking up, but I pray that you would give us um, alert minds and eager hearts today as we open your word. I pray that you would guide uh, Scott's words, Carrie's words, my words, as we uh, talk about scripture, about anthropology, and I pray that you'd help us to really bring all this together and rightly understand who we are. Um, as, as scripture reveals the truth of what it means to be human, what our needs are, what our purpose is. So we pray for your bl- help and your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so just briefly as a reminder, I think everybody here is, looks pretty familiar, uh, familiar faces, so you guys know the drill. At the end of each section in our class on doctrine, we're taking a few moments just to do a review to reflect on what it is that we've taught through regarding a specific doctrine, and then give a chance for you guys to ask any questions that may have come up through the course of the teaching. And if you don't have any questions, I may have a few to throw at these guys. So I'll be sort of moderating this morning. If you've got a question, you can just raise your hand, shout it out. I may repeat that just for those who might be listening later, uh, just so that they can hear what was said. And we'll do our best to talk through that. No promises. We don't have all the answers. But uh, sometimes there's things we studied that we didn't have a chance to, to fully explain in those lessons. And this is a great opportunity for some of that extra stuff to sort of get shared and, and to hear what, what things you may have, uh, have questions on. So why don't we kind of go ahead and just review what it was that we talked on. So Scott, if you could give us just a brief recap of what your topic was and sort of the, the main points of your outline there. Yeah, sure. So I introduced the topic of anthropology, and uh, we set the expectation that, like any topic we look at, we look at it through the lens of Scripture in contrast to what secular anthropology teaches, which is that man is just an evolutionary uh, chemical accident with no purpose or meaning, uh, devoid of any purpose uh, or God involved. So, So the expectation was that we view anthropology through the lens of Scripture, And we began with the notion that uh, God, as Scripture speaks about God, is infinitely able to speak things into existence, ex nihilo. And the importance of sudden creation was the term that that we used, is extremely important because that's what Scripture seems to indicate. And along with that, the implication of sudden creation comes the sudden creation of mankind uh, itself, himself. And the implications of that are important because if Adam is not a real person, then all the genealogies fall apart. And the real men that are listed as descendants of Adam, you have to question, well, where do they ultimately go back to? Because they all lead to Christ through the tribe of Judah who came from, you know, the the forefathers. So 
Uh, a literal Adam and Eve was extremely important. It has implications on the gospel, which we didn't really get into. Um, but sudden creation, very important because it's an attribute of God that he can create like that. Um, also, we mentioned, we went off a little bit on one of the current topics that we all deal with, it, which is racism. How does a literal Adam uh, bring importance to the notion of what uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says, which is from one man or one blood uh, came uh, the human race. Uh, so that's extremely important to understand that we're all related distantly, uh, not just through Adam and Eve, but also through Noah, who came off the ark and that we're all just different shades of brown with different levels of uh, pigment. So from there, we, we went into um, whether man is three parts, body, soul, and spirit, with a distinction between soul and spirit, one of them being the part that worships vertically, the other one that gives logic and intellect. Or is man two-part, body and soul slash spirit, with spirit and soul interchangeably used in the scripture? Or is man, of course, what we don't accept. The materialistic, just a body, which we reject because scripture never speaks of that. And then we went into another interesting uh, facet of the discussion on the origin of the soul. Where does the soul come from? Uh, is, is it something that existed out there like the Mormons say, just waiting to be attached to a body? Or does God create the soul at the moment of conception? Is he still creating? Or is it something that's inherited through procreation, the secondary means? This is something that's very interesting to talk about. Scripture doesn't speak to it eloquently, but those are the topics that I went through. Uh, and then I believe Carrie taught next. Yeah, so um, that next, or rather the third, third part of our study in anthropology had to do with uh, defining sin, understanding uh, the sin nature uh, sin's origin and its effects. And so we first um, looked at why is it important that we, we understand the doctrine of uh, hamartiology, uh, the doctrine of sin. And um, we defined sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And so really setting up that, that clear dichotomy between um, God's perfect standard of his moral law that's set forth in the scriptures and um, sin as being uh, in, in opposition to that. Um, so we then tr sought to answer the question of, of how did we arrive uh, at this place of being permeated by sin and in every possible way falling short of God's perfect standard. And so we went back to Genesis chapter 3 and looked at... Um, the, the story of the fall and that original sin with, with Adam and Eve. And uh, from there, we wanted to discuss and understand the effects, the repercussions, and the consequences of um, that original sin. So um, the first aspect of, of the effects of Adam's sin that we looked at is um, the doctrine of representative headship. And how his guilt is imputed to all of his descendants. And so not only have we inherited a sin nature uh, through Adam, we have inherited um, or have transmitted to us 
the actual guilt of his original sin and breaking of God's law. And that is something that happens uh, universally. All, um, all mankind, all of Adam's descendants are the inheritors of the guilt of his sin at conception. And um, so that was the first thing that we looked at. From there, we talked about um, the sin nature that we have inherited through Adam um, and some of the implications of that. Um, I believe that we refer to that as the doctrine of original pollution or original corruption. Um, and so within that doctrine of original corruption is um, the doctrine of absolute uh, de- or total depravity. And we looked at kind of those aspects of, of total depravity, that it does not mean that uh, all who are unsaved are always acting to the full potential of their sinfulness. It also doesn't mean that the unsaved are uh, incapable of any act of relative good, but it does mean that um, all men in their natural state, apart from Christ, are absolutely and totally permeated by sin, that it corrupts their, their natures, their, their intellect, um, and uh, so then we looked at the final consequence for sin, and that is death, a spiritual death, a physical death, and an eternal death um, in separation from God. All right. And then my topic for anthropology was one that probably wouldn't get a lot of attention and focus in sort of the traditional treatment of anthropology. I dealt with gender, marriage, and sexuality. And the reason we wanted to stop and and define those things biblically was simply because that is something that is uh, being challenged and misunderstood so much today. So while in maybe some classic treatments of anthropology, you won't find a chapter on this, we thought it helpful to give some time and attention to it. So Obviously, we want to affirm the authority of Scripture um, that gender, the way you present yourself, the way you conceive of yourself to be, should be something that matches uh, biologically what God has made you to be. So uh, transgenderism, presenting yourself as something different, thinking of yourself as something different from what God has made you to be uh, would be sinful. It would be rebellion against God. It would be unbelief. Uh, Marriage is defined in Scripture as the union of one man and one woman for life. It's a covenant relationship. Um, It's for procreation. It's for pleasure. It's for partnership. That's God's God's plan for marriage. And obviously for sexuality then, um, you know, sex is reserved for the marriage covenant. And so any same-sex attraction, activity, we talked about that being sinful. Um, And even probed more deeply into the nature of temptation itself. Is it sinful to have those desires? Um, And we we made a, a differentiation between two different types of temptation. We know that Christ was tempted in the sense that he experienced external pressure and he, he had this opportunity, as it were, to sin, which he refused. Uh, but Christ never experienced the, the kind of temptation discussed in James, where there is an inherent desire that comes from our flesh for something that is evil. Jesus never longed for, desired something that was wicked. Impure desires are themselves impure and therefore sinful. So there's, there's two different types of temptation that can be experienced. And so we talked about same-sex attraction as being in and of itself something that is sinful and calls for repentance that also can be cleansed, that 
also that there's an opportunity for freedom, that Christ can free us from those things. And it may be a struggle, it may take time, but we would never tell someone that you're doomed to be uh, defined by this sin and wrestle with this sin uh, indefinitely. Uh, so we want to be there to help people walk through those things, whether it be gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, and help them embrace God's best for them, God's will, what is right from Scripture. So we dealt with the origin of man, what it means to be made in the image of God, special creation, the doctrine of sin, sin nature, that its effects, and then gender, marriage, and sexuality. So that's sort of the gamut of what we covered. And so with that, we'll open it up to you guys. Any questions or things you'd like to hear additional comment on based on what we've taught on? Yeah. Yes, so the question is, what's the difference between inherited guilt and inherited sin? Scripture talks about not putting sons to death for the sins of the fathers, so how does that, how does that work? Um, well, you know, we would definitely affirm and acknowledge that, that um, the Scriptures do teach that uh, a man is to, be, is to face punishment for the sin of which he personally is guilty, and uh, the doctrine of representative headship is, is unique from, um, you know, any other instance where someone might be held accountable for the sin of someone else in that God made Adam and Adam alone, separate from every other person to have lived, to stand as uh, representative for all the human race. And so... Um, for that reason, there would be a distinction between inherited guilt and an inherited sin nature because inherited guilt is something that is transmitted or imputed to Adam's descendants. Um, and it, it would be possible to look at that and say, well, how is that fair? And I think if we're asked that question, you'd have to ask the same question of how Jesus' alien righteousness could be imputed to us and how God could punish him for our sins. Um, because it's, the, it's that parallel between Christ as, as the second Adam um, that speaks into that doctrine of the inherited sin, not only nature, but guilt. So the, the distinction as well would be that, so not only do we inherit the guilt of Adam's original sin, we also inherit a sin nature, um, which we alone are you know, own and are responsible for. So from the very um, moment that we come into existence, we have that propensity um, to sin that is our own, that we are um, held accountable for. So there, there is a, a distinction, I believe, between the two, and we would um, sort of define it in those ways, that there is the doctrine of representative headship, which means an inherited guilt that would be a, a legal reality. A legal reality. Mm -hmm. And then um, the doctrine of an inherited sin nature, which is just a, a practical reality that mm -hmm. I'm from conception 
prone to sin and permeated by sin because of total depravity? That's good. Good question. I'd be curious to know, it sounds like you've studied this a little bit. Do you agree with that? Or is there any other scripture that comes to your mind that you've grappled with in, in thinking through this? Yeah, and that's where we have to take the whole counsel of God and, and see all of it together. So where Scripture teaches explicitly Adam represents the human race and that Christ represents this new humanity, those who are made new creations in Christ. And then it also tells us that they're the only two who function as federal heads, that outside of those two situations, on a regular daily basis, people get dealt with according to their own sins. So all white people are not represented by me or vice versa or all men, or you know, my grandpa doesn't represent me in, in those senses. Only Adam and Jesus fulfill that role. So some people look at the two cases of federal headship, and they extrapolate from that and say, that's how it always is with every human relationship, which is unbiblical. Other people ignore that. They look at the situations where it says, only, you know, you're only punished for your own sin. And so they want to make that the end-all, be-all, and say, therefore, it's not fair that Adam represents me. And we have to take all of it into account and recognize the full counsel of God. So it's, good. it's a good question. Yeah, and one of, one, of the, uh, one of the kind of anecdotal ways of explaining it is, is it's as if you were there in Eden and you fell exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. We have no power greater. We have not fallen the way we have. Yep. Amen. Michael. So the question is, what are some heresies historically regarding anthropology and how might the church buy into them today? I think the first one that comes to mind, we're going to use big words here, some historical words, but there's a man named Pelagius who denied total depravity. He denied that man was um, unable and unwilling to believe in Christ. He denied that sin had distorted the will. Um, and so I think we see Pelagianism, something that's sometimes called, you, you hear, semi-Pelagianism. Basically, people who refuse to acknowledge how, how deeply the infection of sin runs. So I would say that's something that, I mean, continues to plague the church today. That would be one, one view, is just really underselling and under, underestimating uh, the impact of sin. That would be one that comes to mind. Um, I think, Scott, you mentioned another, just... Believing that man is a bag of chemicals, nothing more. Yeah, yeah. This huge concept, which I call the pagan creation story of uh, neo-Darwinian evolution or cosmological or geological evolution, is such a huge man-made, outside of Scripture, extra-biblical syncretism that, that many Christians try to attempt to um, uh, combine with Scripture, and there's absolutely no scriptural evidence for that. Um, I think that's a, a huge... Um, uh, heresy. Uh, a second one is, and we talked a little bit about the origin of the soul, uh, and this is a minor heresy, but it's called pre-existentianism, 
which uh, Plato and um, a num number of others said, again, I mentioned it, that the Mormons believe that there is the pre-existence of souls out there floating around somewhere that are just waiting to be attached to a body when, when it's conceived. And again, the whole notion of what we're trying to do here in systematic theology is to take anyone's subject and apply the whole of scripture and say, what does it say about that? And we find no scriptural evidence for um, the pre-existence of souls. So that's another heresy that we don't hear a lot about, but uh, those are two that I can uh, just yeah. think of off the top of my head. And to that, I would just add all of the deviations from the biblical teaching on gender, marriage, and sexuality. That's probably the most prevalent one today. Yeah, so Roman Catholicism would be Pelagian. So, <clears throat> yeah, apostate. It's an apostate church. Um, in terms of accountability, yeah, there's going to be new believers who don't know what they don't know, and maybe they're coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe it's your Mormon neighbor who is just coming to saving faith in Christ. So when an immature believer who doesn't, hasn't read the Bible, hasn't been taught, there's going to be a lot of things that need to be sanctified. So we want to be patient with them and lead them to, to see what the Bible says. Uh, when you have someone teaching and, and who's examined what Scripture says and decidedly rejected it, that's a different story altogether. And Scripture says not many should be teachers because they will be held to a higher standard. So while we're accountable you know, to, to try to maintain and uphold truth, at the end of the day, God is going to handle that, which is a very sobering reality. So yes, there's a much higher level of accountability for those teaching than there is for those uh, who are not you know, leading the church in that way and speaking on God's behalf in that way. But yeah, there's several other hands up here. Carolyn. Yes. In the case of Kleinfelter syndrome, and the X, X, and the Y. Mm -hmm. In the case of Turner syndrome, and the one chromosome, which is an X. And sometimes the parents are faced at, you know, at birth, uh, the genitalia yes. is not of a male or a female. Mm -hmm. And the parents have to choose. They're, they're faced with yes. the decision. Mm -hmm. And this is probably 0.1% of the 
0.017 is what I saw. Yeah, it's yeah. very rare. So if I could summarize your question in case somebody watches the recording later. It's a good question. So in terms of gender, <clears throat> at birth there's a number of different deviations from the normal pattern, chromosomal pattern for male and female. And there's a number of different you know, conditions that are all sort of grouped, if we could use the word intersex. It's sometimes used as a label, which isn't always accurate. And people even disagree on which, which conditions belong under that umbrella category. But let's, let's just say when you have a difficult situation, someone's born and gender is not clear. Their biological sex is not clear. And maybe it's something that, that is later to develop. Maybe it's something that's underdeveloped. Maybe there's chromosomal differences. What do parents do? It's an ethical question. It's a matter of wisdom. Um, scripture doesn't speak to this directly, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that it's just a free-for-all, do whatever you want. Uh, we still are called to exercise wisdom and to honor God in, in our choices. So before, before addressing the, you know, what should a parent do in that situation, let's step back from that and just say this. This is a very rare um, situation. And so what we don't want to do is extrapolate from these very rare outlier situations and draw out some principle that gender is fluid or that you choose what gender you want to be and apply that to the whole. So we're never going to take the exceptions and make rules for, for everything else. So we have to deal with the exceptions as exceptions. And the fact that we can even categorize these exceptions shows we know what the norm is. We know what male and female is. And so, yeah, you have a difficult situation where a child is born and it's difficult to determine what's going on. Maybe there's, there's some sort of... And this is a result of the fall. The fact is creation is broken. There's groaning. There's things that aren't as they should be. And sometimes that affects gender. Um, I'm just going to share some practical pastoral wisdom. How would I offer counsel to someone uh, in our church who, who faced that situation? What would my wife and I do were we, if we were to have a child that, that had some of those abnormalities? Um, I think a couple truths, theological truths, would guide us. Number one, that God is sovereign. So we would want to providentially recognize that this is something God has assigned to us. And so <clears throat> while it's tempting to say, I want to fix it, I want to change it, to jump to surgery or sort of artificially lock in to male or female, I think there's a level of humility to just say, the Lord has given us something that is complicated and it's not very clear right now, you know, how our child should, should best present themselves. Um, I do think that it does matter which of those syndromes it is. Like you mentioned some of those syndromes. Sometimes those things, you know, when you hit puberty, things change and become more apparent. So I think urging patience and, and trusting the Lord would be important. And I would just be slow to artificially try to lock something in. And if it becomes clear that this is a male who has female characteristics, live as a male and bear some of those female characteristics that may be unwanted, may cause difficulty or confusion, but you deal with that as something that God has assigned. And so you want to be a good steward of that challenge. But if biologically you are a male, even if maybe not the typical male, then you should live as a male. If biologically you are a woman, if it's clear that this is clearly a woman, even if certain things are underdeveloped or there's certain maybe male characteristics that are somewhat apparent, then live as best you can as a woman. I, I would not want to artificially change anything. But that's a very difficult situation. I think on a case-by-case -case basis, you would have to walk through that. But you can still do that while affirming God makes male and female. God is sovereign over my body. And I want to live as he has made me and not live in violation 
of, of anything that, that God has made me to be. And even sometimes to live with the difficulty of that and to humbly acknowledge God as, as your maker uh, and not sort of take sovereignty for myself to say, I am going to make myself something. I think those are the principles that we need to keep at, uh, in view. But that's a difficult situation, and thankfully it's very rare, but it does happen. And so I think we can live faithfully as Christians with some of those difficult circumstances while still upholding what the Bible teaches about biological sex being fixed. Very good question. Practical question. Adam. Okay, so biblical, what's the biblical definition of death? And is the idea of the separation of the body from the soul, is that the biblical definition of death? I'll throw this to you first, Scott. Yeah, I, I would have to say that uh, I usually don't agree with N.T. Wright on much, but um, I, I would say that that is actually mm -hmm. a biblical notion, um, that there does seem to be, a, of course, we know a physical death that will receive... Um, resurrection bodies. We don't know what those will be like, but certainly the soul uh, does have a different destination once, once physical death occurs. So we see the separation mm -hmm. um, at death. Um, I don't know what else to say on that other than I, I, I'll let any, you Any biblical that. passages that come to your guys' mind? Cause I, I've got a couple that are coming to my I, mind. I'd, I'd love to hear. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to just jump on everything. I've never really so. been asked this question, so... So Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there seems to be this instantaneous, you know, how can you be present with the Lord if your body's behind? That's, that's the soul. That's the immaterial part. And with the death of Jesus, we see that he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. That seems to be at the point of death, the separation of the spirit or the soul from the body. So those are two texts that you might look at. Um, and that's why the classic Christian definition, um, which you said N.T. Wright, you first heard it from him, but I've heard it many places, is... It's the separation of the soul from the body. That's, that's death. So, Okay, you remembered your second question. So the quote from C.S. Lewis, I've heard it too, is that you're not a body that has a soul. You are a soul, and you have a body. And I think what he's pushing back on is how we overvalue the material and we undervalue the, the immaterial aspect of what it means to be human. So I can agree with his, the point he's making. Um, but we wouldn't want to devalue either of those. There's this unity um, in being made in the image of God. That's what makes us different than the animal kingdom is body and soul and they're, and they're inextricably linked together, which is why to separate them is death. So they're, they're that, that tied together. The only other thing I, I would say, uh, you know, in speaking to whether or not that serves as a good definition for death, that the, the separation of the body from the spirit, I would say that it serves as a, uh, a good defining characteristic of death, but not necessarily a definition because it, isn't, it doesn't really comprehend all of what death means. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back to the fall and, you know, what's described about 
death being a consequence of sin, um, there is this this wearing down, this wearing out, this um, you know real strong concept of physical death as being the end that we were not supposed to have to our to our physical life. But I would say that only as a defining characteristic of physical death alone, mm-hmm. because we have also to deal with spiritual death and eternal death. And the defining characteristic of both of those would be separation of the soul from God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the more important um, definition to, to bear in mind mm-hmm. um, when it comes to death is separation from God, um, because that's the ultimate death. Um, and you know, the, the scriptures say that it is appointed unto man once to die, so speaking of a physical death, and after that, the judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be my thought there, is that it's, it's not a bad definition, but it's not a comprehensive one either. That's good. And to tack on to that, as you mentioned, that the book of Revelation does refer to the second death, which is when uh, those souls of the non-believers are judged and put into the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. So there is a physical death, the first death, and then the second death is a spiritual death. Yep. So to repeat the question, I'll repeat it real quick. Um, For a believer, someone who's born again, is it possible to do good works that are free from from corruption, that are not tainted by sin? Because he made the statement that unbelievers, that they can do relative good from a human perspective, but there's really nothing that they do that is not uh, corrupted by sin. So you're asking, how does that apply to believers? I would say and he asked for you, Carrie. So. <laughs> I would say that it is impossible for me, on my own, through my own fleshly effort, to do anything that is free of um, of the ingrained sin habits of uh, of this flesh. Um, I would also say that through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit it is now possible because I am set free from that law of sin uh, to obey God and to please him. It is possible through the spirit alone for me to act in a way that is pleasing to God and therefore free of sin. Um, the scriptures, and nothing specific comes to mind, but I know that we're, we're told in, in the epistles that we are, um, we are set apart to be pleasing to the Lord um, to created walk, for created works. for good mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. And um, nothing that is of sin is pleasing to him. Uh, so I would infer from that that in this life, because of the life of the Holy Spirit living in me, I'm able to please God, therefore act apart from sin. Mm-hmm. I think your question is probably coming. I, I can't remember who said this, but there's one of the Puritans, and you, you've probably read this as well, who said something along the lines of, there's enough, in the holiest of my prayers, there's enough sin to damn the whole human race to hell, or something along those lines. And I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember where I've read that. 
And I think the impulse of that to relentlessly always assume that there's something in my heart that probably needs to be hunted down and put to death, like that's a good impulse. Forgive the Puritans for maybe overstating things once in a while. So I would agree with Carrie. It is possible to do good works that actually do please God. That doesn't mean that, like often you'll hear the, the text that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's, if you read that in context, referring to hypocritical empty worship, that that so-called righteousness is repulsive to God. That doesn't mean that Christians are unable to do things that actually do please their Heavenly Father. So I would affirm what Carrie said. Yes, a new nature. We're being conformed to the image of Christ, and Christ was well-pleasing to his Father. So the more we become like Jesus, the more and more pleased, not in a judicial justification sense, but just in the relational sense, the more pleased God is by us. Yeah, yeah. It's good. We also good have the book of James in chapter 3, where James uh, parses out the dichotomy between uh, evil works that come from below and the wisdom of God that comes from above, as if we can do holy works. Um, mm -hmm. uh, verse 17 of James chapter 3 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, things that we are commanded and called to, which do glorify God. Yes. So we do have the potential through the Holy Spirit, uh, per Romans uh, uh, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified by the Holy Spirit to do those things. Maybe time for, for one or two more. Go ahead. So how aware are we, whether my works are completely of the Spirit and pleasing to God, or maybe there's some of my sinful motives mixed in? I'm not omniscient, so that's why the psalmist says, he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart, you know, try me. And we, we need God's help to see and always be suspicious of our, of our own selves and always be quick to give anything good that comes through from me is obviously from God and not take the credit for that, so I think... Cody had a hand up there. Practical advice on engaging with those who have bought into the world's teaching on gender, marriage, sexuality. How do we find the, I think to use your word, is there a balance between speaking the truth but also loving them, leaving doors open for the gospel? I, I wouldn't pit those two against each other. I think that speaking the truth means preaching the gospel. If we only tell them that homosexuality, transgenderism is wrong and don't tell them the good news of the gospel, we're only sharing half the truth. And if we do it in a way that is angry, or um, vindictive that lacks any love, then we're not, we're not fully communicating the, the truth in the proper way either. So I, I don't want to have a dichotomy between loving them and telling them the truth. I want to see those things, because the Bible ties those things together. In terms of, of practical, I think part of it, and you guys can add to this, part of it is I think you need to know who you're talking to. Um, there's these two verses in Proverbs right next to each other. 
Um, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So there are certain times where you don't want to get sucked into a debate and an argument. There's no point. This person is a scoffer. Um, they have no interest in truth. They hate God. And, and it's, it's honestly not going to be fruitful at all. And there's going to be certain moments where we need to know better than to get drug into every fist fight, you know, that we could possibly get into. There's other times where there's an opportunity to uphold what is true. And God will use that. Now, God may use that in two ways. He may use that to draw the person to saving faith in Christ, to set them free from sin, to rescue them from the deception that they bought into. Or he may use it to condemn them in their rebellion. It may be something that's brought on the evidence table on the final day and say, you knew better. I even sent my servant Cody to tell you, and you still refused. And so even their rejection of the truth may be something, and this is heavy, but it may be something that gives great honor and glory to God because it vindicates his justice on the last day. So it may or may not excite you to be used that way. We don't always know what the end is, but we do know that God calls us to preach the gospel, to share the truth, to warn people of destruction. And God will use that to save some. To some people that will, to use Paul's language in his letter to the Corinthians, to some people that will smell like life. To others, it will have the stench of death. They'll want nothing to do with it. Our job is simply to get the message out. So we need to be humble. We need to love people. We need to tell the truth. And we need to be wise and discerning as to knowing, you know, how deeply to engage and how far to go with it. If someone is a family member, there's a relational context. Um, you're playing kind of the, the long game. And so there's different things that are in view here. If it's someone on an airplane that you'll never see again and you only have 30 minutes, you might go for the jugular a little bit more than you would if it's somebody you're going to talk to every day for the next six weeks. You know what I mean? So I think there's wisdom that's involved there. But those are just some thoughts. It's not comprehensive, but anything you guys want to add? I would say also, after having listened through numerous documentaries to the testimonies of born-again Christians who once were in the gay homosexual lifestyle, uh, there's a bit of sensitivity that's needed. There are, there are many etiologies of why someone comes to the homosexual lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It may have been abuse by a parent. It may have been neglect. It may have been just the teaching of the world. Whatever it is, God's law is written in man's heart. We know this from Scripture. And the testimony after testimony after testimony of former homosexuals who have been born again will admit, I knew this was wrong. And sometimes telling them that they're bound for hell is not productive. They already know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and this is not always the case, they need to know that God is a forgiving, compassionate, merciful God who grants grace. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen tears of believers who were in the homosexual lifestyle that could not believe they could be forgiven because they know the depravity of this sin even if they're not really churched. So I think that's a sensitivity that we need to mm -hmm. keep in mind as we witness, as we give the bad news sensitively. But also I think there's something important that I need to give credit to Dan Rudman for, which is that homosexuality is not necessarily that which condemns you to hell. Take that off of the table. My heterosexuality does not save me in and of itself. The point is... Uh, the standard by which man will be judged are the Ten Commandments. If you're perfect, you can achieve hell. I'm sorry, achieve heaven. So let's take sexual preference off the table. Have you honored the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you disobeyed your parents? Have you ever stolen anything or lied? 
you don't have to go through many of the Ten Commandments to shut the mouth of any man or woman to convict them of their need for a savior apart from their sexual lifestyle. So, you know, I think it's counterproductive to get caught up in these social arguments. Go to the heart of the matter. Are you a sinner in need of a savior? And then give them the gospel mm-hmm. lovingly, patiently. And some people will accuse us of being hurtful when we say it's a sin. But I've always liked the analogy that if I see a person standing on a bridge about to commit suicide, I will tackle them to the pavement, and it'll probably give them a concussion and cause them to bleed. But you save their life by hurting them a little bit. That's, that's mm-hmm. love and that's compassion. Okay. So these are things I think of in witnessing to the homosexual community. That's very good. Very good input. I'll, just, I'll wrap up with one final thought, Cody. I think we need to be relentless and ruthless even when attacking ideas and ideologies. Ideas and ideologies hurt people. And they dishonor God, and it corrupts our world, and it's terrible. But we need to be compassionate dealing with people, with individual people. So I think that's why we see people engaging different ways. Sometimes you're attacking ideas, ideologies, and arguments, and we want to take every thought captive. We want to see Christ be proclaimed as supreme, and so we're going to attack that with full strength. And then, like Scott talked about, dealing with real people, with real experiences, we want to show some compassion and sensitivity. So... Yeah, it's a good question. We are out of time, but thank you guys for coming early. Uh, I will just let you know, and we'll announce this later today too. Our next sec- uh, section in this class is going to be soteriology. We'll be dealing with salvation, and we'll be taking some extended time to deal with that. So I hope you guys will come back and join us as we jump into that next week. So thanks. You're dismissed. We'll see you back here in 15 minutes.